0: Now I'm the doting father. Now I'm trying to, be, trying to be trying to get my Claudio Reyna on as a father. Trying to make, make sure my kid, trying to get, sure my kid gets, make sure my kid gets all the playing time necessary. Not Whoopin Reyna, up. please.
1: <laughs> you are now listening to the Dreaming of Freedom podcast on the Two Cents FC network. All right. All right. Welcome back to the Dreaming of Freedom podcast, where we play at the intersection of football, politics, history and culture. I'm Jermaine. I'm Callie. And we are members of Black Herons United, an independent black supporters group for Inter-Miami and all things black soccer in South Florida.
2: For today's show, we'll be speaking with a leading scholar in African-American history, Professor Derek White.
1: Professor White is a professor of history and African-American and Africana studies at the University of Kentucky. He's written two books, The Challenge of Blackness, the Institute of the Black World and Political Activism in the 1970s, and Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Jake Gaither, Florida A&M, and the History of Black College Football. Professor White is also the co-host of the Black Athlete podcast alongside the homie Dr. Lewis Moore. And he's also an avid soccer fan and a low-key insider on all things black soccer in the U.S.,
2: so we're really excited to welcome to the pod professor derek white
0: professor how are you doing today i'm good i'm good thank you for that wonderful intro uh i don't know about low-key inside their knowledge for the u.s that is asking a lot out of a brother i'm just letting you know but i like the fact i dream big i love it i love it good <laughs> no, to be yeah. here
1: we're all about dreaming big on the uh on the podcast No, for sure for sure uh, so derek uh you know can you please uh talk to us a little bit about you know about that soccer about that soccer insider knowledge uh but really you know like how how did you get into this uh into the game uh like did you play growing up just kind of give us your background in soccer
0: so um like many uh black children in the south uh i had to go to church every sunday and i had this older cousin who played uh recreational soccer in a local league and uh he played on sundays and that got me out of church if i agreed to go with him and so i was probably like four five years old like can i just go to not be here uh and he played on this soccer team um maybe he'll listen to this because he always brags about how he's the start of all this so this is me giving him his, pr- his public shout outs um and at like five or six, I signed up for the league as early as I could. And the rest of the time I was just hooked. Um, um, I started playing at five. Uh, I joined a select club team in Kentucky. That's where I'm from, Lexington, Kentucky. So that was probably a 10. And, you know, traveled all over the Midwest, um, playing tournaments. It was pretty decent. Um And, you know, by the time I got to high school, my high school experience was always interesting. I went to in Lexington there like at the time there were four public high schools and maybe five public high schools. And um, I went to the one that had the highest percentage of black students um, and most of whom uh, were uh, playing basketball and football. Um, but I had some guys I had played recreational soccer with and some select soccer guys I played with. And I recruited some guys from the neighborhood uh, to play on the high school team. And we we did it. Um, we were, you know, we were not as good as some of the other city teams by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but we were pretty competitive uh, in our level. Um, and, and I had some, I was pretty good. I, I joke until recently, I was probably the best player in our high school, but... Um, there's like two guys in the MLS, um, <laughs> from my high school now, so now I feel like I can finally pass it. Top over. three isn't bad. Uh, I mean, top three is not bad. That's what I'm saying. 30 years later, still in the top three. I'm no, you know, I don't know who's making this list besides me, so I'm putting myself <laughs> in the top three. Um, it's a great list, man. It's a great list. Uh, no no then, one's
2: arguing against you either, man. I, mean, I know <laughs> this guy, you guys
0: cannot say these are just facts. There was no evidence, uh, anywhere unless you got an old, uh, beta uh video player or something like that um and so i you know i wanted to go to college honestly i was like really uh, you know i had a chance to go to college um a lot of local schools i had a chance to go here uk and i was determined to leave university of kentucky i mean ble- leave lexington uh i applied to a bunch of schools um not really understanding how college soccer works um and and so I applied to all these different schools. Um, got into most of the schools because I was a pretty good student. This is how you become a professor, I guess. At the end of the at the end of this story, um, I got a I got an academic scholarship. So I wanted to go to black college, and so I, this is where I kind of fit into this podcast. And so I applied to Alabama A and M, which had a soccer program at this time, um, and and Howard. Um, so my parents, I applied to Alabama A and M. Um, you know, Jermaine, you went to FAMU, right? This is this is so you yes, understand. Sir. You understand. Okay, so I'm older, but like pre internet black college is like amazing. <laughs> um, so I applied to yes, apply yes. to I applied to Alabama and <laughs> Howard You appreciate this story. So I go I apply to Alabama and Um, I'm like fifth or sixth of my class or something crazy like this, right? And I go down there they had not even processed my application. This is like two two months later. I didn't know, you know, it's like, whatever. You had to type you it can, out. Like, it was like yeah. ridiculous. So I go in. I just like, we're going to do take a visit. So we take a visit. Uh, I go down there, meet with the admissions people. She introduced me to the soccer coach who was also like a chemistry professor because this is like black college life. Like it was Alabama and it was doing something different. And so I go in there and I talk to him. He's like, interested he is like hey how you doing nice to meet you never seen me play never he was like what's your GPA because this is like the first question they ask you in college. I tell him what my GPA is he walks me back over to the admissions office and was like we would like to admit him like I had never seen anything <laughs> So, like, two weeks later, I don't know if it's two weeks, but this is the, oh, this story is two weeks. But, like, two weeks or a month later, I get a, a letter from Alabama a telling me that I had gotten admitted and I had gotten a full scholarship, <laughs> right? And so, like, I had made the soccer team on academics alone. This dude had never seen me play. Nothing oh, like, yeah. He was, yeah. Like, like, he didn't but check li- my resume. <laughs> Little did his, he know he got the third best player in your high school. I, exactly. I was, like, <laughs> I was a gym, right? And then yeah. I was, like, okay. So, I got in there. I had this full ride. I was amped. Um, uh I had also applied to Howard. I never heard back. I am still waiting to see if I got rejected for my admissions <laughs> for Howard. Like I keep like I don't know who to call at this Yo, point. Oh, um, man. the coach never called me back. It was I was like, oh, whatever.
1: Yeah. Um, nah, you're not gonna
0: get so back to Never. I just I've just <laughs> I've gotten over it barely. Um and so I'm like, all right, I'm gonna go to Alabama and yeah, this is like a cool I went down there for a visit. I saw they play, you know, it was it was completely different you know like when you're from like you're american from like kentucky which is not the most like diasporically <laughs> diverse place i went to alabama and m and they were recruiting like they only had like two american-born black players on the team where everywhere else like was from all over the caribbean west yep. africa like, it was like yep. and i was like oh i don't know if i'm actually gonna be able to play daddy like <laughs> I saw it. I was like, oh, um, but, you know, That's when you're young and you've got irrational confidence, as I did at that time, I was like, whatever, right? Like, I'm going to be able to do this. Um, and and about halfway through the year, I had a, a teammate of mine who's a good friend of mine whose dad had played in Virginia, had gotten into Virginia, was going to play in Virginia. And this is, this is in the middle of the UVA run where they had won like four out of five national titles mm-hmm. or something crazy like mm-hmm. that and we had grown up together and i felt like he was really good he was a big you know forward like 6'4 guy um and i felt like man he could play in the acc now that this is when the acc was the very best conference in america okay so when i applied to colleges I was like, I want to play in the ACC too. Even though I had wanted to go to black college, this is like Howard was kind of like giving me the closest thing, but like, I didn't hear from Howard. So you know how this goes. <laughs> I applied to North Carolina and NC State, um, Clemson, um, Maryland. Um, and I got into all those schools, like I got in academically on all those schools. So I'm like email, like I'm like writing letters to the coach because there's no email. So you had to write a letter to the right, coach. Right coaches are sending these letters back like come to camp i'm like come to camp i'm like i got working class parents like how am i supposed to get to clemson <laughs> um Facts. and um and so like the spring before like i feel like my senior year i gotten into maryland academically um and I I sent another letter. I never heard anything back from Maryland, but somehow I don't even know how, but like somewhere on the early internet I saw that Maryland had fired his soccer coach. So I sent another letter to the new coach. Ah. And he was like sh- like sure, come visit. I'm like I'm coming for a visit. Um you know, this is what I want. I reached out to him I was fortunate like I had a this uh, the secretary of our high school her son-in-law worked at the admissions office at Maryland and he was so she was like oh come talk to him you'd already gotten in da, da, da. so I you know went up there my coach took me up there it was like we'll go we'll just go get in this office meet with the new head coach which is Sasso Shirosky, who's like the all-time like in the top five winning as college coaches in mm-hmm. America at the time he's like 29 or 30 or something like he's ridiculously young um boxes are not unboxed like you know it's like we literally have just moved into this job um and he's like he does the same thing that happens at alabama and he's like um what's your gpa i tell him what it is he's like what's your your test scores he's like let's go down to admissions <laughs> so he, he literally walks me down yes. to admissions and he was like i had never really seen me play um And, you know, he was like, I don't know why we I haven't seen you play. So I was like, whatever you haven't seen me play like Mm -hmm. it's the Midwest. It's the 90s. There's no tape, no Instagram, no, no, no nothing. (laughs) Um, And so he was like, cool. He gets i get into school he comes to see me play in the summer before my senior. like before i'm literally gonna go go down there in the spring he, i, I played a tournament he comes and watches i actually get hurt at this tournament which is crazy um Damn. but i guess he saw enough that was like you know basically you're gonna i'm walking on i got a full rod academic scholarship so once that's taken care of they're like do you have a roster space and he's like yes because mm-hmm. what else mm-hmm. he's gonna say mm-hmm. um and then I tore my ACL that summer. It was terrible. It was a terrible time. I tore my ACL before I get there, which turns out to be the best thing that happened to me. Act Like, it, in life trajectory, I think it was the best thing that ever happened. Okay. Um, Soccer-wise, it was terrible, obviously. Um, tear my ACL this summer. I go to school. I was already going to be, like, a basically, I didn't, they didn't use these terms, but I was going to walk on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I tore my knee up. Which meant that I got there. I just kind of immersed myself in the University of Maryland culture, met friends that were on and off the team. Um, I just had a really good life as a student, not just an athlete, but a yeah. student. I rehab, played that spring, played again in that fall, lettered. I was, you know, I always, I always bragged to my students. I'm like, I lettered at Maryland. Like, let's real. <laughs> um, I got a couple stats in here. Um, <laughs> And then but the end of that year like i had to keep this gpa up i was a math major um and i was at the cut line i was like you know 3029 i was right around that number mm-hmm. and i could, knew my parents couldn't afford maryland so i was like i need to be focused on getting out of here with the degree and my knee hurt every day like every day like it is hard it's, when people yeah. tell you that it doesn't hurt like it hurts every day, and. <laughs> um and it was really evident that like the next group of recruits that were coming in behind me uh they were going to be amazing and my little lettering I'm glad I lettered year one because I was not <laughs> going to probably letter year two um uh, and and so I just decided to like hang them up bronze the boots finish my academic career and then decided to go to grad school um the long short version of that is I just went to Ohio State played grad school went to grad school and uh got a master's and phd master's in black studies phd in history first job what? at florida atlantic university What,
1: what
0: hey, um, <laughs> hey. uh and then me my way back to back home which is weird after 30 years um yeah. and so but it's been a it's been an interesting it's been an interesting um uh trajectory because i was in the sport for obviously from the time i was like four to 25. I played a lot of pickup soccer with guys with the Columbus crew um, when I was in grad school. Okay, okay. And then, you know, a job, then a job comes and, you know, Jermaine, you at least know this, like, it just kind of sucks a lot of your energy away. It's like, you got to focus on getting this book done and this work Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and so you just kind of fall out of it a little bit. Um, And then when I took a job at Dartmouth, I actually got right, I got back in it just because I was working in athletics as a small school we had some really good opportunities. And so, you know, I was on a search committee for the coach. They hired Bo Ashone there. And so Bo was, I was on that committee. And so that forced me to kind of get back in it a little bit. Like I'm on the committee and I was the only one who knew anything about soccer. So I was like, I probably got to watch, figure out what we're doing tactic wise. And like, did I ask some tactic questions? I was supposed to do the diversity questions, but apparently (laughs) I got to ask different kinds of questions. And so I did all that and it was uh, it was a great experience and that got me and then Bo's been a really good friend and so you know just got to walk like you know at all the students uh, and uh, you know so that kind of brought me back into into the world and then my kids got older and started playing so. Now I'm the doting father. Now I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to be trying to get my Claudio Reyna on as a father. Trying to make oh, sure no. my kid. Trying to get sure my kid gets make sure my kid gets all the playing time necessary. <laughs> Not what Reyna, posi- please. <laughs> what position did he play? Uh, do,
2: excuse me. What position did he play?
0: Uh, I played forward and outside mid. Um, uh, in those days, um we played a lot of 4 so at Maryland I played forward and then I turned around they just like you can run so just play outside and mm-hmm. um <laughs> and so it was it was you know I didn't play a lot a lot of left bench in Maryland a lot of left bench um like, like Gio Reyna everything's tied together yeah I'm saying like. You know, um
2: I
1: see the connections.
0: <laughs> but my dad did not call, did not call nobody. Um, but it was good. It was good, you know. Like Sasha's a Hall of Fame coach. I learned yeah. a lot. Like it was, um, I joke when I when I when I had my student athletes at Dartmouth, um, my soccer players, I'd be like, Y'all got it easy. Mm. I'm like, oh, how you know? And and their coach was uh, Chad Riley, I think it's Chad Riley, Chad Rowley at Notre Dame now. And I was like, Y'all got it easy, because like none of these coaches yell. Mm. Leave it like like they were like, oh, I was like oh young Sash, like at, at like 32 and can I say full of piss and vinegar? Like like it was like <laughs> <laughs> why aren't you doing spit everywhere? You like, am I supposed to take like it was hilarious? I hope sasha to right. hear this, but like right. Sash was amazing, like it was a ama- it was amazingly intense, and I learned a lot about the game. Um, right. Which is why I also have a PhD. Um and so it's great to 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 see you know that program uh you know reach the heights that it did and former teammates both played professionally and now some are coaches and do a lot of teammates are doing really amazing things so it's been a, it was really a good experience i would never trade anything for
1: it where, where? and yes yeah, so, so i mean speaking of the reinos uh would <laughs> do you do you have any thoughts on uh like the state of u.s soccer uh the state of like Black U.S. soccer. Um, I, you know, I, I know you know a few of the black uh, college coaches, black college head coaches. So, just kind of, what is your take on on the on the game in the country?
0: I, I'll say this: I am extremely excited. I don't, you know, it's hard. I mean, you guys are living in Miami, and and and, and Jermaine, you got Caribbean backgrounds. So, like, this is North. But like, you grew up in Kentucky. You know, I used to joke like I knew so many. Of the other black kids in the midwest because there was you know you go to a tournament there might be like thousands of kids and there might be 20 black kids in the whole tournament and so to see a national team that is unbelievably diverse and black in particular is truly amazing like it's something that i could never imagine. the way soccer is so you know in this country soccer is extremely middle class is extremely suburban It is a sport that is tailored towards a particular kind of demographic um and for years you know there were only two kinds of soccer college soccer programs right there were soccer programs that developed these suburban kids recruited them developed them and there were other programs that recruited kind of internationally right like guys who you know whether they're like howard who recruited the caribbean internationally in west africa or there were programs like um, St. Louis and others that were recruiting like England and Europe and those kinds of programs as well. Right. And so there was never a space for a lot of black players on any of these teams. Um, you know, there's a handful here and there. Virginia had a few. NC State had a few. You know, there was always I mean, the, one of the things that ACC was really known for was that it was probably the most diverse league in the 90s. Whereas, you know, you look in the Midwest, um, and then on the West Coast you had a lot obviously more Latino players on the West Coast. Um but you know soccer was not at most schools didn't even have men's soccer. Um, in a lot of smaller schools. So you're talking St. Louis um FIU was a uh, was a problem at one point, right? Like um you in know in uh, like Frazier. <laughs> like it was like you know so like you know if you were in Florida, if you were a small school in Texas, like those schools were really um, had a lot of problem, but if you were Indiana, like Indiana was only recruiting, honestly, like suburban kids from the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Like they only, you know, you play for Chicago soccer, you play for one of the Indianapolis clubs, you play okay. for, okay, okay, um, you probably play for St. Louis or Scott Gallagher. Like, like you could see if you go back and look at those rosters, that's where they are, right? And, um, and so I think that like to watch a national team that's both diasporic and international. Like, I think you always have that international, like, you know, we need to figure out these children of servicemen who <laughs> who live in Europe has been a, mm-hmm. was a strategy for a long time, mm-hmm. but those strategies are also now looking extremely black. And I think that is, for me, as it has seen, you know, 42 years, 40 years of American soccer, that's been pretty exciting to watch. Um, the future, I don't know. I mean, like, it was. I thought this is about where we are. I mean, I think people were disappointed, but I feel like we made the that's we made the knockout round. That's about where we are. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we don't have a lot of depth. And I think the 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 biggest difference mm. between us and the top end of the world, the teams above us, like the fifteen, is is that the youth programs, the the club system internally is designed for depth and and creating the next generation of players inside their own development process and mm-hmm. i think the us is we are just now starting that process so we if if there are results to be seen we won't see them uh for a while right i mean tyler adams is like the youngest captain but he's also like the the only person to actually come to one of the few people to come through that system that academy system so like he's 27 so we're not gonna see any of that um that process We, you know we're probably like two world cups at least away from that but you know i think it's it's amazing i think we obviously need a coach um they haven't they got a lot of internal issues um I think that they've done that. I think on the other end I think they've done a terrible job um recruiting, developing um and making Latino players <laughs> comfortable in, in the US system. So like while the program is really black, it's also not Latino enough given the population that plays soccer. So yeah,
1: and that, that was going to be our next question like 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 what do you think what do you think the the federation can do better?
0: Man, I saw this story, I don't know. I, Jermaine, you know this, I'm an academic, so this is going to be terrible. I read this story, I don't know how many years ago or whatever, but like Hugo Perez had a role in the U.S. Soccer Association. And one of the things that Hugo Perez, who was who was on, him, on the national team, and like he played in the Olympics in 86 or something crazy, like he was like goes way back to the 80s. Um, he was definitely trying to approach kind of dual nationals uh, in Mexico and in like kind of South kind of south southern california texas and those regions and really kind of make sure that they're in the american system and kind of cap them so that they would be in the process so like he had a like a strategy um and there was a story that came out i couldn't tell you where it was sports illustrated or something like this and it was like the federation was unhappy because he wanted to like he was coaching one of the youth teams and they were Speaking Spanish and they felt like they should, you know, like it was all kinds of that kind of, it, it felt like I was like, man, I read this article, I was like, I know exactly what this is. Cause that's exactly how it felt for a long time that if you weren't suburban you didn't play outside of Chicago or outside of St. Louis or outside of, you know, New York or the mid Atlantic, like you couldn't be, there was no space for you in, in the process. And I think that we still have to figure out how to, to really capitalize and and like identify players at a much at a much earlier age and figure out a structure that's going to work for them um and you know i think like everything in america everything is too tilted the wrong way i think this you know there's like all this like oh so- college soccer has now been demonized i don't know if you've all seen this in y'all's in y'all's other shows but there's been a there's been a big push that like They're encouraging kids to not play soccer because they're like, you know, you're four years older, but not four years better. Basically, it's good, you know, because you don't practice. You practice every day, but you don't have you got classes, you got all these kind of things. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so I think there's some, you know, one of the things that Sash, I feel like I'm a a spokesperson for Sash. But um, one of the things that Sasha, (laughs) Sasha has been really pushing is year round soccer. Right. So reducing the number of games in the fall. Playing kind of once a week, increasing the training time so that the the champ, you know, the national championship game is in the spring, uh, as opposed to a fall sport. And there's been a lot of there's been up for debate. It's actually been voted on a couple times and not made enough votes. Um, you know, there's particular kind of like university challenges, like schools in, you know, in the <coughs> Northeast. So, like, you know, winter happens <laughs> until March, right? Like um, and then they don't have indoor facilities for for the soccer team. Sure. Um there's also kind of just playing surface problems like, um, you know, lacrosse in the mid-Atlantic, like lacrosse team has all that same space, right? Like so men's and women's lacrosse or field hockey, like they're all using the same kind of field or practice facilities. And so soccer doesn't have dedicated space In Maryland. Right. They do, but in other places they don't. Right. And so I think right. that becomes a challenge for other schools, depending on where they are and their resources. Um, but I think part of his reaction is hearing the fact that folks feel like the so- college soccer is not an ideal. But I actually think college soccer for the for 95 percent or more of the kids at this academy. That's like the outcome. That, that's the best case scenario. Right. Like um, and so I think that there's lots of ways for you to develop um, lots of, you know, some people don't all develop on that kind of, ex- ex- you know, that quick curve that academy soccer produces. Right. Um, and I think that you're actually better off developing players, um, getting degrees, you know, using soccer to help them further their, their careers and their lives. And I think that's a, that's probably the bigger issue. That's me sounding like an academic. But I think sometimes the academies are like, if you don't make a pro, then, we're you know, it's <laughs> like, what are you doing? I'm like, the European models mm-hmm. have got a lot of flaws because that's their model. It's like they cutting kids at 16. And they got very little education they don't know what to do with themselves and if they don't have any money or resources they're just kind of lost right middle class folks in europe can send their kids to you know private school get them caught up and then send them over to the us to play soccer over here but a lot of other kids are not and so like why you know we have to be aware of the worst parts of the academy system and so i think you know so uh, american soccer is in a i think in a in a kind of a, moving in the right direction but I think it, it has a lot of things to work through Um and yeah, it's hard this is a big country lots of people uh, our naturalization laws are actually fairly complicated compared to <laughs> and so like sure, I don't even sure. know how much money we're spending on scouting I feel like that's you know like hmm. that's a big part like you know are we digging in the crates and bringing people in and, and seeing um, you know where they are uh, you know, and I think that's much easier with the internet. But like, folks better, you know, it, me. You were born in New York City, but you don't. You, it, but you've lived in you know wherever for the last mm-hmm, twenty mm-hmm, years. Mm-hmm. How about you come home, right? Like right. that. <laughs> <laughs> that exactly, that, compli- exactly. that, compli- that is a hard conversation to have. But like, and I think they're doing a much better job with some of that. But, um, but I think that matters in a, a lot of different ways, a lot of different mm-hmm. places.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, ideally, like in terms of like the youth system, you would want to find that balance between the European academy system and also kind of the school like education uh, model over here in the States. But yeah, I mean, I think it's it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see what we do in the next couple of years leading up to 2026 um, and kind of what changes, what doesn't change and, you know, how that, you know, how we move Mm -hmm. forward. Um, But it should be, you know, whatever. It'll be interesting. I, I have very low hopes for
2: the US. I know, you are a pessimist. you're like I'm very much a pessimist
0: too. I, I am like Cameron. Like I'd be like all oh, pessimists but then the World Cup come on and I got it. I'm dressed in all red, white, and blue, like is, like <laughs> Dempsey. Like you know, like what you know, like it is, I am very like uh, you know agnostic <laughs> all year and like this is all awesome. this is we you know good. But then let us get into one of these tournaments and I'm like yeah, especially when we <laughs> especially when they tried out like seven black dudes. I'm like yes, sir, let's go. Like it makes it makes yes. my rooting interest very. Very, you know, very um, you know, it, it it feels like, man, all right, all you know, I didn't have those kind of rooting, in, you know, it was like Kobe Jones and like right. you know, the Beasley. Like it was like three dudes, yep, right? Yep, like yep. um
1: Eddie Pope, uh, yes. and, and
0: Eddie Pope and Tony Sant. Like it was like them five mm-hmm. dudes, right? And <laughs> uh and now you got let me try it out, i Something like I gotta go look at, I gotta look who this is because I have no idea who this is. Where they find this guy at. <laughs> um and exactly. so that's a positive i think that that part is positive i think you know coaching is you know i think i've got this strategy so if y'all tell my if miami wants to be successful i'm gonna tell you this is the thing y'all heard it here first um i've got the strategy that our training system is all wrong and what i mean by this <laughs> okay. is, is that we are emulating what european academies do yeah right mm. But if you walk on any, any campus in, in any college campus in America, and I ask who's the best athlete on the campus, like eight out of 10 times, it's either going to be a defensive back or a wide receiver. Now, all the defensive backs in college football generally look like soccer players. They're all between like five foot nine and six foot two, and none of them weigh more than 200 pounds. Mm-hmm. And they all have better feet than ninety nine percent of the soccer players, and I'm like, but they also uh bench press two twenty five, like right. fifteen top, right? Like, there's a certain kind of thing, like, and their elite quickness and speed and top end, like change of direct, like all that. And I'm like, all our soccer players are like, we need to do this beep test. I'm like, no, you need to do those drills over there with the DBs. <laughs> <laughs> right 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 because if you because if, if, if you don't get your roster to look like dvs you're gonna have you have problems yeah right because it's just something about the they are often physical they're often um they can flip hips which is because this is because i write about football so i spend a lot of time football on football locker <laughs> rooms right but if they can flip their hips in a ways that like mo- most soccer players dr- would dream of right like Absolutely. Because, because no, you know, I I have a soccer player in my class, and I said this to another. I was like, look, I have a football player and a soccer player. The football player is like 225 pound, like safety linebacker, right? He runs a 4 6. And I said, I, I'm 100% sure he's faster than like everybody on your soccer team. And none of them weigh 225 pounds. That's crazy. That's yeah.
2: Crazy. We, we've we talked about it in other episodes and stuff like that, that the best athletes in America don't play soccer they're out playing football and they're playing basketball. So it, the question becomes like, how does U.S. soccer bring in some of those guys that would be playing football, the DBs, the wide receivers, how do they bring them into to play soccer?
0: Why don't we just make soccer players DBs? See, they, this is the thing, like we're always, <laughs> like I, like those those athletes who are playing DBs, when they're 11 and 12, they're not the best athletes all the time, right? They're not, the, the space between the best soccer player and the best, um D, what becomes a db or wide receiver that space is small right mm-hmm. but the difference is the db's running track right it's a, yeah the, yeah. the, the db is like it like working on speed and agility training right yeah like
1: it's a different DB's type of training
0: playing, dbs are playing like 90 percent of the game backpedaling right like <laughs> and you watch soccer every, i watch professional soccer and i'm like those guys professional defenders their feet are terrible <laughs> They're getting paid yeah. like thousands of pounds a week in the best clubs in the world, and they can't backpedal. Yeah. And I'm like, and the dude running at them has a ball at their feet and not running four or two, right? Like, there's a certain kind, of, like, there's a certain kind of thing that they. have. That's
1: interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. Like, yeah, the, yeah.
0: there's a certain kind of ability they have, and I'm like, why are we not trying? Like, that's the most American. Like, no one else in the world could do that.
1: Right. Right. So it's a matter like, of training. It's just right? changing. Like, how, right. how soccer change, is. Okay, uh, Canada
0: yeah. could do it. I guess they got football over there. It's like weird up there, but like they got Canadian <laughs> football. So, us in Canada, right? Right, right, um, right. And so, like, we are always focusing on like fitness. We're always focusing on, um, you know, kind of long term conditioning, change of direction. But we don't really focus on explosion in in like our, uh, like, when you watch Mbappe, Mbappe has this natural explosion where you're like, dude, people are backing up. And I'm like, but a lot of that can be, like, you Mm -hmm. don't, some of it's natural. Some of it, you can't coach like that, but we should be trying to get all our guys at a higher level. So can I bring up Gio Reyna? I hope the Claudio don't hear this, but Gio Reyna weighs like 115 pounds. Like he's tiny. Like he's 125, like whatever he is. He's like, okay, he's 140. That's me winking and nod, right? Right. And he's, how old is he? 20 years old? 19 yeah, he, yeah, yeah yeah. I think he's 20
2: I don't know I'm not even sure he's 20 well, let's
0: say he's 20 so that would mean if he's 20 years old he's a college sophomore go look at the college sophomores play a DB mhm right
1: and that's a great point right like, like, yeah, yeah. I never and they about come like, in
0: they come out of high school and you're like ooh that dude is little he's 130 pounds like and they'll be they'll gain 10 pounds in a month and they're like well that's not gonna make them play soccer and I'm like None of those soccer players could play DB. Right. Maybe a couple of them. Right, right. But like right. those soccer players, those DBs could learn how to play soccer, right? Exactly. Like I mean, like they exactly. don't have the foot skills. Exactly. That's a very technical kind of thing. But if you ask them to run play a ball down the corner, they could run it down.
1: Right. Right.
0: Yeah. And yeah. to your point,
2: you're seeing college college football players, you know, get drafted at 21 years old and they're 5'10, you know, a buck ninety-five, but they're squatting 500 pounds
0: yes they're squatting (laughs) they're squatting 325 pounds and they like on a slow day they run a four or five five right with pads on right like that's wild and so like there's a certain kind of i think there's a certain kind of hubris in the soccer world where they like they imagine like america's like we should just emulate what europe is doing and i'm like okay maybe but mm-hmm. maybe and then they're like well why doesn't alan iverson or lebron james and i'm like have you seen how they built like why do not you just building players in that model
1: yeah yeah right? yeah.
0: you know yeah. there's a balance there like they won't be probably as physically strong but there is about there's a level of explosion that happens on every roster every you know like there's just when i was at fau i had a guy who got drafted A play DB, and I had never met anybody who was like 185 pounds and just ridiculously strong as an ox. And like the dude would come and shake my hand. I'm like, why are you like trying to break my hand like every day? Like it was not that serious. And he would, he, he was all conference like three years in a row, ran a four, three, four, four, right? It had unbelievable feet. And you're like, oh you're playing the wrong sport mm-hmm. and you know 40 inch vertical could run fast could flip his hips I'm like what other skills do we need besides being able to kick the like, <laughs> like, like my argument is like just put the we could we've been teaching the skills but we are not teaching that other part Right. And so yeah, I think there's yeah, something to be yeah. said about that. So I've been saying this, I told, I told a friend of mine that's like, y'all doing this wrong, but like, go ahead, keep doing it this way. But Hey,
1: you heard it here first on June podcast. It. I just
0: want to let y'all know that <laughs> I want my money though. When it goes, when it, when, when y'all see this in 2026, I'm just like, y'all know, bring me in as a consultant. Cause I think it's some of it's like the best athletes, um, in many sports played multiple sports and the, i think one of the drawbacks is you know we've like and this is a cross sporting world the youth sports it's like kids are specializing earlier and earlier and i think one of the things that hurts them is it helps them in very technical ways like the stalkers a lot of technical skills that they need to learn how to do but they just don't have any like body control and understanding like you know playing bass the logics of basketball and the logics of soccer are very similar right like you know how to do this i didn't have we i grew up in a, i grew up in the i played soccer in the 80s there was no soccer on television like we used to get like 30 minutes on fox when they would give Damn. us like a quick rundown of the game right Damn. um and then the world cup would show up or the olympics or whatever that was the only time you could see 90 minutes for most of the time when i was a kid but if i played soccer you know what i knew how to do i knew how to post somebody up because i watched basketball right so if you you know like there were certain kinds of things that were just translating like how to use your body how to you position how to do these things and then you pick up a lot of soccer specific stuff later because obviously we didn't have any of that kind of infrastructure Mm -hmm. but my athletic knowledge was always higher even when i played against teams like one of the things i realized at maryland like those kids who had much better infrastructure than we had in kentucky also did not understand anything about like like how to use your body how to do these things all this And i'm like none of those tricks work if i if i put my elbow in this in your chest Oh yeah. But Just you learn you that because cause because you learn that in like like it's like basketball defense. Yep. Like the first thing you do is you put the you like, oh, I could box you out. I could do the, like there were certain right. kinds of physical things that you could learn how to do. And I think sometimes we in our rush to to try to emulate, I think some of the best ideas in the world, we forget some of the things that we do really, really well here in the United States. And I think mm-hmm. some of the the conditioning stuff. Because you know europe has taken all the conditioning things which gave us a little bit of an advantage a handful of world cups ago and now they all got they're all doing all the tracking and they're doing all the same things that we're doing and i'm like you know we should probably do something else mm-hmm.
1: damn Damn. That's see, that's see, see it. see is- that but that's why we got you on here because you're cause you're a professor, you're an intellectual, you <laughs> you think about these types of things. <laughs>
0: we appreciate that.
1: We appreciate
0: I, that. I you know, I'm always happy to talk. So I love I love soccer. I'm just like, yo, you let's let's can we get through out here looking like DVs like <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right. So, all right. So let's transition actually into, into, um, your career, your profession as a, as a professor. Um, so can you just talk a little bit about how, why did you want to become a professor and how to, and, and specifically, uh, you know, a history professor, a professor of African-American history? Um, and how did you end up writing about sports history?
0: So I, uh, you know, I was going to play soccer uh be a high school teacher uh math teacher and then coach soccer that was the plan and i got about three quarters through the plan and i kind of like teaching it was i like teaching it was fine like but teachers with master's degrees made more so i went and got a master's degree in african-american studies i did not want <clears throat> to teach like math five periods a day like that was just not the way mm-hmm. i was like if i could teach an african-american studies class um at this school that would feel like i would be good and I just, I loved it, went to Ohio State, loved the program and just stayed. I liked history more than sociology, more than English, more than, it was not like, it was not like this brilliant thinking out decision. Um, and I was in a program, I stayed, I went to Ohio State, stayed at Ohio State, cause I already had, a, you know, I had a roommate and I had a, like, I had a place to live. I didn't have to move. Like it was, it was like none of the thinking things that I would tell any graduate student to do now. Sure. Um, and then I just, but I had great mentors at Ohio State. A lot of great. Ohio State had the first um, graduate program in African American and, and Black Studies, um, and, and the late Dr. Nelson had taken me under his wing. And he was, a, you know, he was an a, he was an old school, you know, activist and and political scientist. But the old political scientists were basically historians talking about politics. Right, um, right. But he was also a sports fan, right? <laughs> so he would take me, you know, I was like, uh, he like. uh, Mr. White, would you like to go to the Ohio State football game? And you're like, "Yes, I would." And we, I'm like, "Wow, we sit at the 50." I'm like, "How are these? These seats are amazing, Doctor Nelson." Um, uh, and so it was just a good space for me to kind of grow and develop. I had a bunch of great colleagues and classmates and cohorts. Um, and and so I chose history, and I, you know, at the time, you know, I did not do sports history initially. I think Jermaine and I have talked about this before off off camera. Um, you know. It was really impossible to get a job doing sports um, uh, when I came out in the early 2000s. Um, And the reason was, is that sports were just not seen as something academically serious. right? It was something that you did. Mostly white men wrote about baseball or boxing, um, and you just did not have a chance to talk about sports. uh, to, to to get a job. And so, like, I, I did an intellectual history. I was absolutely loved, loved that work on the Institute of Black World, which was my first book. Got me the job at Florida, uh, Florida Atlantic FAU. Uh, and I was fortunate. I had a good, I had good colleagues, many of whom do work with Jermaine. Steve Engel, in fact, was like, I was like, you know, I want to teach a sports class. He was like, you can teach a sports class. Go ahead. I've been wanting to teach this baseball in America class forever. And so they just let me do whatever. I taught a sports class. And from that sports class, um, I had this assignment in which students uh, in groups, I believe, uh, had to do what I call kind of an intellectual um, sports biography of the different uh, different colleges in the state of Florida. And so mm. given the kind of um, interesting college makeup in Florida, where you have old schools like University of Florida and Florida a you got fairly kind of mid-century schools, So uh, a school like Florida State, which was the Florida College for Women. Then you have brand new what we would think of close and quote unquote brand new schools like um, Florida Atlantic or Central Florida, or South Florida. And then you have private schools like uh, uh, Miami, like the, the array of colleges and when they were founded and how they approach sports um, and where they are on the kind of sporting hierarchy allow for students to do a really kind of interesting project that gave d- very different results. Um, and that was really one of my favorite assignments in the sense that like, you know, Miami and University of Florida, older older colleges, older universities going back to the early, late 19th, early 20th century. They've had, you know, football since 1890 or whatever. Um, but Florida State doesn't have played football because it's co it doesn't become co-ed to 47, right? And so like that, Florida AM and m has this long history of playing college football in the, in the 19th century. But FAU, like when I was there, Howard Schnellenberger had was like in his fourth year as head coach at FAU right and Howard Stellenberger was a legend and he smoked that pipe and he had that gruff voice and he had that mustache and he was like you know mumbled all the time um and I thought this was an unbelievable opportunity for students to kind of learn the the trajectory like Central Florida mm-hmm. had gone from like you know Division 3 or Division 2 all the way up to Division 1 and kind of trace some of that and think about title nine, think about that history, some of the logics, so they could use newspapers and archives and digitized stuff. It was a great assignment. Uh, and it turns out there was like really little to nothing on black colleges, which given that Florida AM and m was like at the time, like the second oldest school in the state. Um, uh, and, and depending on how you define it, they might be the first oldest school but that's neither here nor there. Um, that there was very little on Florida AM's athletic department in history. And I'm like, dude, they had, you know, they got Bob Hayes, they got Jay Gaither, they got Althea Gibson. They gotta be something on Florida, like Florida AM has to have something. And uh as soon as came back with a little bit, and so I was actually kind of disturbed that there was not that much because I wasn't really a sports historian, I was a person who loved sports growing up, read sports stuff, knew a lot about history. Um, but just did not d- read a lot of the scholarship uh, uh, in that way, and so I just like I'm gonna dive in so that this project I know it's something there. Um, and like ten years later, I have this book on Florida and m and Black College Football um, because I think it was it was it, that project told me that it was something that needed to be done. Um, and because I didn't come through sports, I think one of the things that I I feel like I do very well is you know, I'm often grounding all my sports analysis in kind of broader African-American history, right? Whereas I think one of the challenges that I give when I'm reading, you know, junior people's work and and other scholars, I'm like, they they have to know more about African-American history than they do. They can't just tell me that it was double consciousness and then move on to, you know, move on to the next subject. I felt like that wasn't enough. That didn't do, that doesn't give me enough of the historical context to explain, the decision making that actors had uh in black college sports and so i really kind of weren't wanted to kind of tease some of that out and so that's one of the things that i kind of uh, that's kind of my my perspective in the way that i'm able to do it and you know i've been talking about black college football for i don't know eight years now seven years and, and the book's been out for four this would be three and a half years now um and you know, and then Dion happened and then Ed Reed happened and then i you know, like, uh, and so people have been, you know, coming and, you know, either coming back to or trying to understand the broader context about uh, explains why black colleges, you know, have faced the kind of challenges that they face. Um, uh, why, do, why do black college fans care so much about football in a way that mm-hmm. like uh, belies their kind of um, positioning or the school size or any of these kinds of things um and so that's been a really you know i've been able to kind of explain in a lot of different ways and so that's kind of how i got you know got into academia but also the kind of projects that i do
1: so with that can you i mean for those of us who haven't read the uh blood sweat and tears can you give us a quick little snapshot of of what the book is about what is like, kind of like what is your main argument what are you trying to convey in the in, in the text so, such an academic question. I'm, I'm, I know. Yeah, I apologize. Like,
0: are you going to give me a job at the end? No, I'm just no, <laughs> no. Um, uh, so the book Bless, Went Tears is basically uh, what I would think of it as a dual biography, right? It is both an institutional biography of the Ford A&M um, football program uh and it's a biography of jake gaither and Jay gaither for those who are not aware Jay gaither was the head football coach from 1945 to 1969 uh, and finished his career with like an 845 winning percentage right like he had one season where they lost three or more games like um it was ridiculous um and i wanted to use florida a&m as a really kind of a case study to talk about the broader world of black college football Uh, And so I really talk about this and how black communities develop what I call sporting congregations, which is this idea of communities that are engaged and concerned and passionate about uh, college sports, but it doesn't have to be about, you know, in this case, I'm talking about black college football, but it could be about any sport, right? And these sporting communities, I think, extend over place and time. I think they extend into diaspora communities, talking about soccer, they defend, they, in urban communities, talking about basketball, like the Harlem Rens. Um, colleagues of mine have talked about this in in, in Latino communities, I think is a, is a concept, I think that really has a lot of uh, flexibility and, and gets us to really think about yeah okay why do the people care about so much about sports right that there's something and then how do they support sports and so i look at kind of the institutional factors that support um, black college football and through florida a m because florida a m becomes in really in the 1950s and 1960s really the most dominant program uh in black college football you're able to now use them to really bounce the idea about what black college football success looks like against the rest of the kind of environment of major kind of black college football. And so there you get to discuss about Grambling or Tennessee State or Southern or Prairie View, all each very good programs and great programs in their own right, uh, led by also great coaches. And so you start to see a lot of the kind, same kinds of similarities happening that are specific to Florida A&M, but happening at Tennessee State at a little different or at Grambling or at Prairie View or at Southern. So that's kind of the the purpose. And so what it does, uh, what I think it does well is it really kind of gets us into this world to think a little bit about uh, how black college football gets developed, but also how it maintains itself through particular kinds of challenges, whether it's World War II, uh, whether it's changes in, in football and how the rules of football are changing, but also most notably how the civil rights movement uh, impacts uh, both the logics and experiences of black college football is kind of really the big, my, you know, my kind of area of special That's awesome. So what's the, so then
2: what, what's the contemporary state for those of that don't know, what's the contemporary state of, of HBCU football?
0: Uh, I think it's actually pretty healthy right now. I mean, this is, it's, it's at a, you know, it's been ebbing and flowing in the last, um, you know, really integration posed a particular set of challenges to black college athletics, most notably um, personnel. And so one of the things I talk about in the book is this golden age, right? That that the peak of segregation meant that, Jay Gaither basically tells this story. Some of this is hyperbole in the coach talk. He basically was like i send one coach down one coast and then i send the other coach down the other coast and they bring back all these letters basically like people signing to play with florida a&m and then he would also joke he would also say that like you know again i've read this quote like hundreds of times and each time it's a different number this got, these are football coaches right and so he's like 85 90 95 percent of all the high school coaches in florida black high school coaches in florida are florida are my guys right my boys right so they're alums or former players of florida a and so he's just basically like his coaches are like seeing their old players and like they're like jermaine you got any good players and like yeah you know this kid right here's all right he's gonna be able to play for you mm-hmm. right and that's how mm-hmm. they would get to florida a right and they would come up and they would find you know what we think of as scholarships but really kind of financial aid and work study and things of that nature that allow them yeah. to come up there and and attend college, right, um, and become, you know, there was not, all, for a lot of that period, it wasn't a professional football, it wasn't a realistic opportunity, so they were becoming teachers, and so that's how you produce the next generation of teachers, and so as integration happened, that really kind of undercut both the recruiting mechanism for Black colleges, as well as the kind of talent, like the kinds of players that they were able to kind of recruit in, uh, and so I talk about that, and so, you know, if you look at the 80s, there's kind of this, this ebb and flow, Uh, in the the late 90s Florida A&M in particular had this amazing run they were uh, they were fantastic my brother was a freshman at Florida A&M at the time and you know they were on their way they were on their way to winning a national title and they you know the guy dropped a pass on the on on the touchdown that they lost to Youngstown State um you know it was it was it was so close right so close (laughs) um and, you know, they had that Gulf Coast offense and then, you know, but then they wanted to go to Division One. I. I, you know, the irony is that, like, there's always when they have black colleges have success. And this is what I saw with Jackson State these last couple of years. The fans, the alums are like they want to recreate that golden age. And they know that the only way to recreate that recreate that golden age is to move from FCS or one AA to Division One. They imagine themselves because. You know, I say this quite honestly, like at the peak, the SWAC was better than the SEC. From like Mm. 55 to 65, you can put that up. Okay. 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 And we could like, they ain't going to win every game, but they ain't going to get routed either. Right. Right. And so those old timers and people who grew up with that legacy are like often trying to say, like, why, if we can just get back to that space, in division one and then get that division one money, we're gonna be able to recreate this thing all over again, mm. right? Um, Interesting. And and so there's always, that's kind of the looming thing. And so Florida A&M in, I wanna say like 2001, try to go, they signed this crazy television deal that was not real um, and they lost a lot of money and they weren't able to go division one. And so you see some of the same kinds of things. But I think right now, I think as where they are, I think they've figured out how to, to move in the black college world. Um, I think there's some definite tensions between, you know, are all these programs that are playing Division One, AA, can they afford to do so? I think that's kind of the big takeaway with this Ed Reed thing at Bethune-Cookman is not, you know, the things that Ed Reed said was wrong. Um, it, he, How he said them <laughs> was absolutely wrong. Um, But they just face particular kinds of financial challenges, and it's expensive to run sixty-five scholarships and Title IX and run women's programs and run an entire athletic department. Um, And when you're a private college, you also have, you know, those are particular kinds of pressures that the state can't just necessarily be like, you can't be like, you know, y'all withheld all this money from us, y'all owe us. That doesn't work for Bethune-Cookman in the same way that it it can work for Florida A&M in order to kind of shame the legislature to kind of up their contributions mm-hmm. um and so different colleges have different uh, you know different trajectories i think you know florida a&m i think jackson state uh, uh southern tennessee state's got a chance north carolina a&t they've been moved into this the white colleges i think there's a lot of interesting dynamics i mean i'm going to be talking about this for the next 10 years because i think the, the few, it's actually more mobile and more kind of volatile now than it's been in the in the previous 20 years okay. um, and so it's pretty exciting right now
1: we're we Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one of the big takeaways uh, I got from the book is, I mean, exactly what you were talking about in terms of how, like the effects of integration, right? We often think of integration as kind of this positive thing, right? For, for African Americans, right? And then it's like, well, there's actually some, 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 you know, some things like some negative things, right? That that happen with integration. Some things that get taken away from particular communities. Um, you know, and, you know, I think like Martin Luther King was talking about this, right? It's like, you know, white Americans at the time are, are not the best example, right? <laughs> like we're trying to figure out like, you know, like what do we, what exactly are we being integrated into, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's just always interesting when these narratives come up that actually kind of speak against that kind of positive image of integration, which is really kind of what, you know, what you, what you and Lou do uh, on the podcast a lot, right, on the, mm-hmm. on the, um on the Black Athlete Podcast, which is really kind of provide some historical context uh to you know to contemporary to contemporary moments. Um so can you talk a little bit about about the podcast and you know how long the podcast has been going and uh what you guys got planned in the future.
0: Yeah. So this is like, let's see, we must have started this in 2019. So this is like year four of uh going into year four of the podcast. Oh, oh. Um um, you know, one of the things that Lou and I have done is we, we, in the discussion of, of sports, um, you know, Lou had, Lou was out there applying his trade, uh, on Twitter, you know, letting everybody know he was the man, uh, and I was really appreciative of the work that he was doing. And so we had ran it, you know, we had talked, um. Uh, on the phone and via email we met a couple conferences and we had been on panels together and we like we should just do a we should initially it was like we should do a like a newsletter blog or something i was like i don't really want to do all that writing I just that's extra work um and so we were like maybe we do a podcast this is before everybody had a podcast there's like 28 million podcasters in the world now something um And so we like we got ourselves together and we finally, you know, just went out and did it. And we have been very pleased with the response. I think we've been trying to, you know, it's a labor of love like you guys know, this is a labor of love. Um, you know, it's hard to keep schedules when you've got families and work and all these things. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things we we try to often avoid is kind of doing um, hot take, you know, like, you know, chasing the sports world, like in the sense yeah. that like people yeah. who have sports podcasts feel like they have to do that um we are really kind of like all right what are the bigger issues you know are there opportunities to talk about bigger issues one of the kind of drawbacks to that I'll just be honest like I'm being Lou talking about this all the time Is like we say the same like every year we do a black coaches podcast because like black coaches get fired in the NFL they get fired because it's like so much of it's cyclical right and so we're like man we already had this conversation like 10 times but we should have it again uh as we have this you know discussion of of what's going on, right? And so it's really a, um, it's a really a great time. We get up there, we get on there and we just, you know, we just chat It's much like, it's like our group texts. It's like, you know, our phone calls. It's like, we just do it for, for the public. Uh, and I think that folks who listen and who've reached out um, uh, are always, you know, pleased by our work and and, and they feel like we've given them something that, that they don't get from their regular kind of sports world consumption. Um, and I think that it helps, you know, it, it helps us, you know, do it. And we always try to bring young scholars like Jermaine on and hey. others. You know, we always try to give, you know, the next generation of young folks, because I think that's always important for us to know that like man we want these young scholars who are doing sports um because you know lou got a job doing sports right like i think that's always interesting he got a job doing sports but he was like it was really hard to get a job doing mm-hmm. sports right yeah uh yeah. and so we've been able to watch this field um you know both the generation of the next generation of young scholars behind us like just come in like gangbusters and we want to give them you know we don't have a huge platform but give them a platform to talk about their work their ideas um and and really lean in uh we had Tracy Canada on last week who's an anthropologist is you know and that's right that's right and, and she had this wonderful article about Demar Hamlin and thinking about like the impact of like football on black bodies right and so getting yeah. us to think from an anthropological conversation uh, um, uh perspective about um you know that tr- th- that nearly horrific uh, incident that happened in the NFL this season, um, mm-hmm. but it was a great conversation. It was so free flowing, <laughs> and, and you know she was brilliant and and easy to like. It, like that's the best thing. And we've obviously had you on and did our you know soccer previews, and you got yeah. everything wrong. I just want to make everybody know that he was, <laughs> he, was, he, was he was all in on Belgium. I wouldn't let you. Everybody was all in, it was all in on Belgium. Hey, Who we went out in the group? Stayed. I was consi-
1: I was consistent though. I was consistent. I was riding with Belgium <laughs> every just podcast was I was
0: on. I was riding with Belgium, but.
1: Nah, yeah i was loud wrong i was very
0: i'm just i just want to remind (laughs) the soccer folks that he was wrong again um um and so yeah no i mean i think it was it was it was really it's a really great opportunity um before we get off can i just say one thing because thinking back to this hbcu thing yeah i think i want to you know one Jermaine, your work on hbcu soccer the, the piece on howard is really like absolutely the like I'm, you know, Dr. Nelson's, my my mentor, Dr. Nelson at uh, Ohio State said this about there's a river from Vince Harden. He was like, this is the book I should have wrote. I'm like, that's the article I should have wrote because I love that. Art. I mean, because it really captures the kind of things that that I wanted to do with sports world, but also capture my my relationship with soccer. And I'm glad someone is actually picking up and doing that work. Um, and we're in a moment, that. man, where like Howard is the only HBCU soccer program, Alabama a and men's program that shut down their program. Uh, but one of the things of opportunities for black colleges is that their women's programs provide opportunity. Yep. And, you know, yep. I think the challenge, you know, in this HBCU football discussion, what gets lost is really the potential for growth and championships is actually in other sports besides football. Um, and I actually think there's a soft spot in in women's soccer, uh, at HBCUs, in part because like black like women get overlooked, uh, mm-hmm. tremendously overlooked at the collegiate level. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know women's soccer, from my perspective, has come a long way, but the coat, but the makeup of the rosters look a lot like they did thirty years ago. Sure. And that tells yeah. me a lot. Even though the demographics of young people playing has increased and grown in lots of ways, it doesn't reflect it at the at the top end of the collegiate level. And so there's actually an opportunity for, for women's soccer at HBCUs to capitalize on some of this. If you know, but you know, it's hard because you got resources and budgets and and you know, how course, do you get out and course. find those places? And so they can figure out how to to manifest some of that. Um I think there's a really great opportunity for them. And I also think that there's a great opportunity for one, at least one other men's program to really lean in and and do it. I mean, Florida A&M is probably the mo- best position quietly um, in terms of geography. Um,
1: sure, sure, yeah, yeah
0: you know like florida's a huge state is a huge diaspora state a lot of people playing soccer so like when you just yep. do, you know nuts and bolts like tuition costs and scholarships and all that like they could literally recruit in state and cover all their costs um but also hampton you know is an opportunity for them right. to you know they have enough resources um and you know i think that there's a couple of other programs you know I think soccer- fisk
1: is what's going on with fisk
0: Fisk has a program. Uh, Desmond Armstrong is the coach, former right, university, right, right. former University of Maryland, former national right. team player. Um, <laughs> I, should, uh, I gave a talk at Fisk the other year, and it was like uh, I had never been such a fan as I was that afternoon. I gave a talk, Man. and my my friend was like, let's go over <laughs> to the athletic department introduce. So I met the AD who was like a legendary AD. And then the men's basketball coach is Kenny Anderson. I don't know if y'all know who that is, but Kenny Anderson, yeah, yeah, yeah. Georgia Tech fame. When you went to school in the 90s, it was the best handles ever. And I'm like, oh my God, Kenny Anderson. <laughs> and then they're like, yeah, you got a soccer team? I'm looking at the rock. I'm like, is Desmond Armstrong here? Desmond Armstrong was there. And I was like, That's I had wild. practiced against Desmond. He had come to Maryland when I was on the team. He showed and I was like in awe then. And well, now here like, like it was. You know, because like, again, when you saw I watched the national team, it was like Desmond Armstrong on that first team, right? Like that right, 92 right, team right, was like, right. like, uh, was Desmond Armstrong, right? Like, yeah, and I think like, he
1: was the first I think he was the first African American, like African American born player to play on a World Cup US men's national team.
0: And so like, I was like, oh, and I didn't, you know, this is again, pre-internet days. I didn't even fully realize he went to Maryland until like, I was already going, getting ready to go. Like, and I was like, oh, Desmond, like this is great. You know, like, and then one day he shows up in practice. It was amazing. And so That's to see wild. him like 30 some odd years later, um, and look exactly the same. I was kind of jealous. I was like, dude, how you look the same <laughs> as you Did you 30 years ago? Right. Um, and, and so like, he, you know, there's a really great opportunity he's doing a lot of good work i mean at fisk and, and nashville's a fast growing community in terms of, of 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 soccer but also in terms of diaspora and 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 diaspora communities and so he's kind okay. of been able to he was doing some work with that uh and he was hope you know that's how he kind of got folded into the fish job because he was like all right that's kind of a natural progression because some of the work he was already doing
2: okay. uh, in the nashville
0: okay. community but yeah man it was it was it was you know there's not enough opportunities at hbcus and 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 we kind of and i just say this we kind of need howard to be good like really good like Word. um and kind of be that example yeah they gotta they have to be um you know i think that there's opportunity at the collegiate ranks um to to do it but you know that's a again like all these jobs are hard jobs I mean, you're not playing coaching football or basketball it's a hard job uh and so how they you know how they're going to move and recruit and schedule like their scheduling is often uber complicated because you know they're in the mid-atlantic but they're not in they're not in any of the con so that you know they got to play mm-hmm. one-offs against everybody and you know they're kind of an ind- i think i think they might be an independent are oh, they actually in the same conferences as, as florida atlantic but for a while like this uh-huh. is crazy um and so they were traveling like you know they got travel calls like it's they have some other kind of real kind of like issues in there yeah in the way the program it's not that they can do about those but like you know they gotta you'd like for them to be successful you know the ideal situation is for them to kind of replicate what marshall did um a handful Mm -hmm. of years ago and so this is like deep soccer cut but marshall won the national title and marshall i'm just i can say this publicly used to stink. Like, I'm from that region. Like, that's not, it was never a good job. Uh, They hired a coach, and he was like, you know what we're about to do? Uh, Recruit internationally. And they recruited internationally, and they, like, that whole roster and fortunes changed. They won a national title, I think, in the second year of the head coach job. Um, And they've been in the top 15 uh, every year that he's been in that role. Um, And so, like, some of it's about, intentionality and the institution you know Marshall's got some advantages that Howard doesn't obviously um but you know there's you know we'd like to recreate you know can we recreate can Howard recreate that that gl- those glory years of the 70s and 80s man and I think that's uh-huh. I still think that's possible in soccer because there's just so many <laughs> soft recruiting you know out once you move outside of academies it's like you know what there are so many players who can just be developed uh, especially in diaspora communities, um, who, who are not because of money, not in, Mm -hmm. not in the academy structure. And so you really got to have some eyes on the ground and some, you know, some boots on the ground to try to figure out, identify some of those cooks and, and introduce them to that. But, you know, know.
2: yeah. So I got a, I got a personal one. It's very important. I to ask every, every guest, uh, who's your favorite club, favorite player?
0: Who's my favorite club and favorite player? That's a tough one, actually. That's a lot. You know, when you grow up rooting for Black people, let me just say, like, you know, I- Listen, the, listen. The, clu- the clubs be changing based on roster construction.
1: <laughs> listen, uh, man. Uh, I'm like, like trying to tell people this, but they're not trying to listen to me. Like, it's
0: hard. Like, I, like you know, it's hard. Like, like, I tell people, like, at one point, so my youngest kid plays soccer um started really watching the last couple years liverpool's on every week it's a very good roster for him to watch right my man because you know it was like dude, they got uh they got mo Salah, they got alexander arnold they got uh they had sadio Oman, they had all these players and i was like look at all these look, look at the highest moving this year not so much they they're not playing very yeah, well it's rough. right, now. I'm, it's I'm rough right now I'm going
2: through um, it i'm going through it um
0: and then on the flip side I'm I never really loved Man U but like this Marcus Rashford might actually get me on the thing cuz he's like playing with some some, he's some compulsion yeah. Yeah. yeah um and then you know <laughs> Arsenal had Terry Henry so you grew up like that like and when I was a kid you know John Barnes played for Liverpool so like that was literally the only black dude who was playing like <laughs> it was like uh, it was like three dudes you know in, a, in the Premier League at some point like it was so few guys um, and so like, I just kind of move around, like, you know, whoever has players that that reflect my interest and, and reflect kind of my, like, my you know, I'm like, I'm rooting for black folks to be successful. And I like, I want my kids to watch that. Um, and I want them to watch black greatness in a sport that they don't often get to see in their everyday existence. They don't mm-hmm. often get to see it. So it can, mm-hmm. You know it can it could tomorrow it could be somebody different right like we weston mckinney might be Leeds united we just watch the us guys <laughs> running around like um right, right. If, if they don't get relegated um you know like yeah. it's, it's like th- that, that's kind of how we move so i don't have you know right now um you know marcus Rashford's playing unbelievable right now so like he's yeah. much c television right now like that's yeah, yeah. that's kind of where i'm at like who's playing really well uh, when Didier Drober was playing well, like I know all these people who are like, who are from you know the Caribbean or from England, you know this Jermaine, they'd be like, how do you like Chelsea? Because Chelsea used to be hella hella racist, right? Yeah, and, still this kind of. And I'm like, did you see this roster? Like this roster got like they tried out all these like you can't root for that. <laughs> then I don't understand like that. Like I don't, I cannot be that picky yeah. because there was not that many people around. <laughs> uh, all, so, I'm here, all I'm
2: all I'm hearing is that your favorite player is Liverpool John Barnes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know my favorite player of all time though? I'm gonna just say this, Rude Hullett, Cause Rude was, I didn't know what a, what a superstar was supposed to look like. I wanted to grow that, dreads, look Jermaine. That's dying, a great but, choice, that's a great but, choice. But this, this, the way my hairline was set up, <laughs> it was not possible. And it was just, the, I, I'm, I will always be partial to the Dutch on the international scene because that was the only European team that I had ever seen, like well before France became like hell black but like Mm -hmm. the dutch was like i was like wait look at all these dudes who look like me and not even understanding the history i probably got a tape in my mom's house this is how old i am Uh, i can't even tell you which world cup it was it must have been the 92 world cup because i had a vcr so it was maybe 92 uh maybe not 88
1: 90 90
0: 90 90 94 90 world cup it was the 90 world cup okay so the 90 world cup when they played uh west germany and frank Reichard uh spit on somebody like spit on the
1: dude yeah yeah oh oh that oh okay that could have been 90 or the 88 euro cup no it was 90 because world cup okay. we didn't get okay. euro okay. this is how i know it would have to gotcha. be world cup gotcha. and
0: yep. i and i was rooting for them so i was so broken by that because like this is not me even understanding any of the history between like the dutch and germany like you're yep, yep. we like because you didn't like i'm like i'm an american kid like i didn't know like we knew who the nazis were but we just did not think that they actually had occupied like that mm-hmm, would bring in mm-hmm, all mm-hmm. that drama too i was like yep. uh when i got older i was like oh i get this i know why he said he probably said something slick that's what that was. oh yeah, so was, yeah. um although you should not spit on the listeners do not spit that is <laughs> please. That'll, that'll get you in a fight faster. please do not
2: spit on anybody streaming <laughs> of that'll, freedom that'll,
0: officially disapproves of <laughs> spitting
2: on people that and is we, our we official do, stance
0: and, and my official stance is you have a right to fight after that like that that is like you get to you this, get to, this like, is true you got to fight after that
1: but what did he say
0: I don't know We're what he said. Right. I, don't <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't right, know what right. he said, but I do know uh I, I have some good ideas. I, oh yeah.
1: Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah.
0: But yeah, it was it was good. It's like it, it you know, growing up black in 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 soccer is a in in the south in the upper south. Uh, slash Midwest is it's an interesting it was an interesting experience and so I'm just so happy that the MLS has grown is is looks diverse we got teams in all these different you know new places like Nashville and Cincinnati and other places like that Um, I'm happy the way that our national team has looked in terms of its (laughs) diasporic growth Um, um, I'm also very excited about um, you know how college soccer has grown and and looks you know i cut it on i'm like oh look at all these brothers in wake Forest, Mm -hmm. and you know like and Mm -hmm. and it's just it's just it really does warm your soul when you were you know you could go weeks and just see your teammates right like you know like even in the night you know when i played in in 94 there were a lot of teams that did not trot anybody out um or one dude, and we had five on our team. And I was like, look at us, we, we ahead of the curve, right? Um, and so that was just, it's just great to do that. And especially when I have kids, because, you know, you guys all have, I mentioned you have kids and when you have kids, you just really need some, they need role models in, in a sport that can be mm-hmm. uh, at times hostile mm-hmm. to to, mm-hmm. to black and, and even Latino uh, experiences in kind of mainstream American soccer.
1: Absolutely. Wow, Dr. White. With that, uh, thank you so much. This has been an incredible conversation. You've blessed us with all of your knowledge and your insider soccer history. Uh, so we, are, we, you know, we definitely really appreciate it.
0: Hey, man, thank you all for having me on. And uh, I need to, uh, I want to let y'all know that I copyrighted that uh That workout plan, so that that, that's that's my retirement plan out of here. So
1: damn right, we are gonna (laughs) yeah, we're gonna blow that up for the next couple weeks. Fast, absolutely. (laughs) All right, guys. All right, Doctor White, take care. Thank you.
2: Have a good night. Thank you.